All right, we're recording. So, <laughs> this is too funny. We're, we're already laughing because <laughs> you reminded me of this funny story. So, you know the telephone game? Sometimes you played at church camp where uh, one person will whisper in the ear of another person um, a word or a phrase, and then by the time it goes around 50 people, it's it's completely changed. <laughs> I can't stop laughing. <laughs> My good buddy. And he gave me permission to share this story. He was a member of one of the largest congregations in the city, probably 500 people or so. Uh, and um, his mom, bless her heart, was just talking to a, a friend a friend in church. <laughs> I can't get to the story. And she said, hey, you know, just offhand, hey, and, you know, while you're praying, just keep in mind, you know, we, I want him to really find a godly companion. <laughs> right? That was it. Right. <laughs> Well, you go back to the telephone game. So one thing led to another, and maybe maybe this good saint mentioned it to someone else. <laughs> the next thing you know, gets home from work and gets a phone call from his buddy, and he goes, "Hey, I just got the <laughs> the prayer chain message. <laughs> Take a listen to this." And so he's playing the prayer chain message, and all of these these prayers are going out, and it says, "And remember during your prayers that he'll find a godly companion <laughs> <laughs> to all the members." <laughs> And, and he's like, ah! <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Just that's, coming home from work, you know, and, and knowing that that went out to hundreds of people. It's he's like, like a little feral movie I or know. something, right? So anyway, I got his permission to share that this morning, and uh, so that's how we're that's how we're starting out our day, anyway. Yeah. So, welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm the friend of Mike Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> we are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. We have, my side's already hurt from laughing this morning. We started out uh, <laughs> with a great story, but um, Corey, what's on your mind today? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, just good to be alive, man. You ever have one of those dreams, or if you haven't had it, you've you have, um, I'm sure you've heard somebody share a dream where you're either standing in a group of people or you're in school and you're like in your underwear or something. You don't have all your clothes on. I just had one of those just this week and it was awful. <laughs> I had my clothes on, but it was different. Uh, yeah. So I was reading a scripture this week, Corey, and, um, it was actually inspired by a lot of the conversations we've had where, you either are, the Book of Mormon is very clear about what happens to you after you die. And I can't think of a, a more important question that mankind has asked through the years and through the ages and of, of all different faiths. You know, what happens when the heart stops beating and you go into the ground? Mm. And we have the luxury of all of the scriptures and all of the word of God that we're able to uh, to look back on and understand but um, but it's interesting reading the the way men dealt with this and the way men explained this, you know, thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago in the scriptures. And uh, last time we talked about Jacob and Lehi and how Lehi had um, talked to Jacob and, when he was a young boy and told him about 
the hope that he has in Christ and how the God, the creator would come down and take on flesh and blood. Yeah. And, um, and that he said at the end, I tell you this because I am, I'm concerned about the welfare of your soul. And then later on, you pointed out Jacob, uh, begins to talk to the people of Nephi and he starts out his talk and says, Hey, I'm concerned about the welfare of your souls. And then he, he goes on to say, I've had great anxiety, uh, about you. And I'd, I thought, what love to have great anxiety for other people. When um, when my brother Adam Gard and I were on our mission, uh, when we were going around, and I remember we were out in California, and we had done a youth camp, and I had made some good friends, um, you know, some young people at that youth camp. And one night I was just praying for them uh, on the couch where I, <laughs> we had a, a one-bedroom apartment, and uh, I was living on the couch basically out in California. I thought, and I saw these. The I saw the faces of these young people, and I was praying for them in my mind. And I, I had tears come to my eyes. I was so, I, I just knew the struggles they were going to go through, and and the way the world was going to tug at them. And that I was seeing them probably in the last years of their innocence. Mm-hmm. And it was a junior high camp, I believe, or a retreat. I was seeing them in the last years of their innocence, and I knew that, um, you know, through high school and college, that many of them would fall away. Many of them would decide that. Um, you know, God was no longer the main thing that they needed to focus on. And and I was praying for them in their walk with Christ. And I, I remember just tears coming to my eyes and what a great spirit, uh, was present in moving me to pray for them. Um, and, and, and if ever I, when I read that scripture, if I've ever had anxiety for the souls of other people, it was in that moment. And that was, that was a gift from God. That's, that's not saying anything about, about me, but I just thought, to have great anxiety inside for the welfare of the souls of other people, um, what love and what knowledge you must have of your creator. And so Jacob oh, wow. talks about Jesus and all of these things, <clears throat> but the book of Mormon is very clear about the end result of where people end up and what happens. Um, and, it, and it goes into great uh, detail about that. And so I wanted to, I had a, um, as I was reading this week, uh, a thought came to me. Um, I, I'm going to read from Second Nephi, the sixth chapter, uh, starting in verse 31. Oh, how great the plan of our God! For on the other hand, the paradise of God must deliver up the spirits of the righteous, and the grave deliver up the bodies of the righteous. All through this, uh, he's talking about the spiritual death and the physical death, and how um, the body dies and goes in the ground. And the spirit either goes to hell or to paradise, depending on what kind of life you've lived. But at, eventually, the, the, the grave will give up the body, the physical body, and the spirit will be reunited with that body to stand before God. And, it, and he's, he's talking about the righteous, you know, paradise. The spirits will come out of paradise and be reunited with the body and go to God. And then the wicked people, the spirit will come out of hell, be reunited with the body and stand before God. And what's going to happen? And I love the wording here. It says, <clears throat> the spirit in the body is restored to itself again, and all men become incorruptible and immortal. And we've talked about that word, incorruptible, Corey. Like, you're no longer able to change. You're no longer able to decay. You know, things are going to stay the way they are forever. Um, there's no more change. Like, you and I are, are we know that that day is coming when our heart's going to stop beating when when our when our body's going to go into the ground and it's going to rot and return to the earth 
Um, but there's a day when, when the scriptures talk about being incorruptible, not meaning that, um, well, you're, you're in the state that you're in forever. Like there's no more looking forward to dying or changing. You're restored and it's no longer going to decay, right? Things are going to go on that way forever. Right. And what a, what a day, <laughs> uh, it says, um, that, that you, you will become a living soul having a perfect knowledge, just like we do now in the flesh, except that our knowledge shall be perfect. Wherefore, we shall have a perfect knowledge of all our guilt and our uncleanness and our nakedness. And the righteous shall have a perfect knowledge of their enjoyment and their righteousness being clothed with purity, yea, even the robe of righteousness. Now, I've read through this section of Scripture a hundred times, and, and if those of you listening heard that Scripture, you've probably heard this a hundred times or more. But I want to point out a couple of things that jumped out to me. Number one, I hate in the wintertime taking a shower <laughs> because I can't stand being cold when I get out. Right? And my wife has a nice robe. She just it doesn't bother her. I don't have a robe. I've never had a robe in my life. I think of the fancy hotels, they give you a robe, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I just hate being cold. But when you talk about the robe of righteousness, mm. think of the word picture. That has nothing to do what, with what's inside you. That has to do with you're taking, the, I just picture this nice, white, long, terry cloth robe that you're in a fancy hotel, and you, you put that on, and it keeps you warm. It's an obvious picture uh, to use that word robe in this, in this scripture where we're talking about eternal life. Yeah. That's, there's a purpose there, and, and not just the robe, but it says you're being clothed with purity. So being clothed, you think like a young person or a baby that can't clothe themselves, you clothe them, you put something on them, you put a robe on. There's an absolute perfect word picture here, being clothed with purity and putting on a robe of righteousness. That's something that comes from without. Another reason that I have a hard time looking at, um, you know, having levels of eternity, and I'll probably talk about this all the time, having levels of eternity or, or rewards based on how good you were, it's not anything within you. Right. It's something that comes and is put on you. The righteousness of Christ, we talked about the blood of Christ, you know, being stained, the, the grape juice on the carpet, and how the blood of Christ, which normally blood would stain, but it's his blood that cleanses you and takes away all of your stain of sin. So you have this robe, you have, you're being clothed, you have a robe, but the contrast to that says those that are wicked have a perfect knowledge of their guilt, of their uncleanness, and their nakedness. Mm -hmm. Now, I've learned from <clears throat> the Bible Project, um, it's, it's just helped me so much listening to them over the years that there are patterns in the Word, in the Word of God, and, and they're poetic and they're there for a purpose nakedness, I, th I thought of that. Corey, where in the scriptures, if I told you about nakedness in the scriptures, what comes to your mind? I asked my wife this yesterday driving to church. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, probably Adam and Eve's yes. story. Yeah. 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 So we knew Adam and Eve were in the garden and apparently naked. And I haven't gone back and actually read the story, but maybe folklore, maybe part of this is in the word, but um, I'm not going to pull it up now. But we know Adam and Eve were naked, and, and once they sinned, they became aware of their nakedness, right? Right. And uh, I joke with <clears throat> Kristen. I always thought that was, and there's been cartoons and movies and word pictures about it, but, you know, Adam going and putting a fig leaf on, you know, to cover up his his 
<laughs> parts that we all cover up because so, he doesn't want to be naked. He didn't want to be cold. <laughs> yeah, he didn't want to be cold. <laughs> maybe he was cold. <laughs> he got out of the shower and he was cold. So, um, but we think of Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned, and then it says they were aware of their nakedness. I, I always, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, thinking of they were looking that their skin was uncovered and they were embarrassed to be in front of each other. And so they, they hid. Uh, I, I guess I thought that once sin entered in, we were all aware that we were naked and nobody wants to be naked in front of someone else. They don't want their skin showing, you know, those nightmares of being in front of a room and, and, and whatever. But, but when I read this, I thought nakedness, if you take it in contrast to being clothed with righteousness and being, um, having on a robe of righteousness or being clothed with purity, the opposite is being naked. That nakedness is referring to the fact that you don't have the righteousness of Christ on you. Um, and so the nakedness isn't referring to your skin showing and, and not having any clothes on and being embarrassed. It's saying that you have sinned and you stand before the holy God, the one without sin, the pure God, the creator of all, and you don't have on the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness. Yeah. That's the nakedness. Being naked is not having on the righteousness of Christ and having to feel the full weight of your sin mm-hmm. in front of a holy God. And I believe that's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. I believe that they sinned and they realized they sinned and they could no longer stand in the presence of God and they knew they were naked. And, I think, isn't that interesting? Because it's like that's what happened in the beginning. Like you point out, like they were enveloped in Christ's love and everything. And, and then when they lost that, you know, that's how they, they felt. And then that, that is in the end, the same thing that happens. Either you return to that righteousness of Christ and you're enveloped by it, or you stand empty and alone and, and spiritually naked. And it's like the book of Mormon says, Hey, the only real difference between the good and the evil is that the good come and they have all this guilt removed. They, they have this whole eternity to enjoy uh, happiness that wasn't ours here on earth. And the the evil, it says the only real difference is, hey, the, the loosening of death. And in, in other words, you aren't going to die now, but you shrink back from God and you remain in your sin. Mm-hmm. You know, you, re, you remain exposed and, and naked. Yeah, and I, th- I think of all the scriptures that talk about, oh, you know, at that moment you'll wish the rocks would fall on you. You wish you could hide and, you know, just hide in a cave and, and be away from the presence of God. And it's like, no. Um, you're fully aware that you are standing in the presence of holiness and you are naked. In other words, you are without the covering, without that robe of righteousness, and you just want to be consumed. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't want to, that's an awful, awful feeling Mm -hmm. at that day. But on the other hand, um, and I believe that's what happened, that that there's that, I think that story carries through to the garden and Adam and Eve when they were naked. They had sinned and, you know, the animals had to be killed, the shedding of blood had to be um, done so that they could be covered with the skins of, of animals. So they were covering up their physical nakedness, but there was also the shedding of blood, which which later on we see, you know, Christ dying is the um, the way that we are covered so yeah. that we're not naked before God. Yeah, there's, there's just as much of a story to learn in that, in that, you know, God had, <clears throat> because they were naked, he did something physical for them to teach something about the spiritual that, hey, I'm, I'm going to cover you and it's going to require death 
of an animal, but the blood had to be shed to teach the greater lesson that to be spiritually covered again, this robe of righteousness, mm-hmm. that he would die, that the mighty one would die, and that his blood would be shed. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a story that... Um, just continually comes up through scripture. And, you know, right now we started this class on baptism and it's interesting that I I love the scripture that you read from the second book of Nephi chapter six, because this was kind of the, uh, the theme of the next class that'll be coming up for this same reason. What, um, and I, I don't know that it's an original thought, but I guess it became original when I never realized it before in my own thinking that baptism is a total symbol of what you just read here, that the the two parts of it are always in the Book of Mormon taught by the type and shadow, the, the, I mean the two parts of baptism, the water baptism and the spiritual baptism. They're, they're totally parallel to this idea that the, the body's going to die and the spirit can die, right? But in Christ, we have the hope of the body being alive and resurrected again, that's coming out of the water, and that in the spiritual side, we have the hope that the sin is removed. That's the baptism of the Spirit. And and I never realized this before, But the, and I don't know of any other church without the Book of Mormon that has this clear explanation through, the, through Scripture like we have in the Book of Mormon. But at the same time, every aspect of baptism reflects this very thing that you read. It's like, no, we're acknowledging this, this is why it's an important witness and not a work like some evangelical denominations get confused by it's a witness that we're saying i realize that my body that could have died in the earth is going to become alive again and through christ and i realize that my my soul that has sin will have the sin removed through christ and and one other little aspect of this which you know we celebrate with communion what all of a sudden made sense just from the same scripture to me is this when we partake of what we call the emblems, you know, that represent Jesus' body and his blood. I always thought, well, it was two different aspects of his, of his death, you know, his body and his blood, but, but, but it's different. The, the bread represented this very thing of the body, and, and, and the aspect of the, the wine or the juice we drink wasn't just another way of representing the body. That was representing the spirit. In mm. other words, his body had overcame the death, his body dying overcame the death that we would have suffered eternally in the grave. And his bloodshed was the thing that caused our spirits to be able to be cleansed because those are the symbols. So, so the, the bread part represented the body that's going to be removed, right? The resurrection, but the blood, the blood is what keeps the body alive. Anyone knew in the olden days, Hey, if you want something to die, well, when it's blood spills on the ground, it's dead. Right. But this blood had to be shed so that the spirit could be removed. And we're remembering both of these things, the, the death of the body and the death, the potential mm, death of the spirit right. through communion. And it's reflected through baptism as well. And these are the points that um, are missed by all these Gentile denominations through the whole spectrum who argue about baptism and, and, and miss it. It's like the blind men at the elephant who, hey, one says it's like a big broad wall and the other's feeling its, you know, feeling its tail. Ah, it's like a snake. You know? Right. <laughs> and, and they're grabbing these pieces of baptism from Scripture and they're not seeing the whole picture. And the Book of Mormon tells the whole picture of this. Wow, I've never even, <clears throat> I've never considered the blood and the body being the, because here he talks about the, the grave the death and hell. Right. The grave is the death, and then the, hell is the spirit. Exactly. Death of the spirit. It was that scripture exactly that, you know, I was just 
working on these classes for baptism. In fact, this was the whole text of the of the next upcoming class for that same reason. So I I, I love how you shared this and tied it in. So that's yeah, and, and I'm not saying that Adam and Eve weren't aware of their being unclothed. That was that's part of it, but but it's the um, definitely here in Second Nephi the nakedness at the end being being in front of God and being aware of your nakedness isn't being like, Oh, I, I don't have any clothes on. It's it's the I don't have any covering of righteousness and all of my sin is on me and I'm in front of this holy God. And I can't do anything and about I can't it. do anything about it because I'm I'm no longer um because I'm incorruptible now. I'm no longer gonna have my <laughs> my existence changed. You know, each one of us I think I think I carry with me, Corey, the idea that I struggle every day uh, with sin. I struggle every day to overcome. I'm aware of my frailties. Um, we were just talking with my son last night. You know, my family, uh, we go to bed very early. You know, seven thirty, eight o'clock, we're winding down. And, and I t- had an honest conversation last night with my boy. And I said, it's because by the end of the day, buddy, you know, dad struggles. You know, I'm, my mind's not in a good place. The, the things of the, of the day have weighed me down and I'm, I'm just ready to turn in and, and start fresh the next day because that's my darkest hours is late at night. And, um, that's just the way it is. But, but I have this hope that I carry with me that one day, you know, I will die and I will be free from these struggles every day yeah. in this sinful world. But, to to know that i mean think if you and i right now just think if we thought like there there's no death coming like this is the way it is forever that would stink man i mean yeah. as much as i don't want to die i don't yeah. want to die tomorrow but as my buddy tom always says I, I, this world doesn't have anything for me anyway i'm ready to uh-huh. <laughs> just just be a doormat you know people wipe their shoes on you every day and that's what it's like to be a try to be a, a christian in this world nowadays but I, I I have a hope that uh, you know the struggle one day will end, but but to to already be in that situation where like there's no more death coming, you are now incorruptible. This is the final state of where you're at, yeah. And there's no more changing, and you're in front of a holy God. I mean, that's the whole thing that motivated Alma when he's right. like, "Oh my gosh, I experienced that." I he said, "I cannot imagine." He said, "I don't want anyone to experience it because you can't imagine how horrible it is." And so that's what motivated him to turn his life around. He's like, "I want to tell everyone, come to Christ because this is the only way to prevent this thing that he said is going to be your destiny, this awful agony forever unless your sin is removed." And and it's interesting too this metaphor you bring up, Mike, in that like you said, he he clothes us in this robe of righteousness. Mm-hmm. If we simply come to him, and it's not a technical thing, but yet what the scripture doesn't say is, okay, well, you know, you bring your robe of righteousness and put it on because of all the things that you were able to do. And then, you know, well, I, I'm going to bring a gray robe. You know, Mike gets a white robe and all these different things. None of the scriptures like that. It's like for those who come to Christ and, you know, want, want to – repent and follow and, and, and endure to the end. He's like, this is what I do. I remove all this sin so that you can be with me because the only opportunity you had in life was to choose me. And you did, you know, it's like, and I, I didn't force you. It wasn't imposed upon you. You had this opposition in all things. Your mind was free to choose and you made the right choice. And so I remove your sin. That's, that's how it works. And you know, it's interesting too, without naming names, you and I both know that, um, you know, off the air, we've talked about this a lot, but we've received 
countless um, countless messages from people, whether it's in person or by a email or some some other text or something, like they're they're all saying, you know, it's been so refreshing to hear what you're saying about the Book of Mormon and, and life after death. I always wanted to ask these questions, but I I never never knew. And it's like I think there's so many of us who are just coming back to what the Book of Mormon says and finding the life and the truth is is here and it, and it answers these questions. Don't you don't you think? I absolutely do. I I read so much this weekend. I, I was I had the luxury of not working Saturday, and so I just spent the day uh, in the Word and, and at my favorite coffee shop. And um, I don't remember all of the places I was at, but I, I I do remember again reading that it says, "No unclean thing, no unclean thing, can be in the kingdom of God. No unclean thing. You can't." Enter the kingdom of God having any stain, any small amount of sin, any small amount of not being perfect, of not being cleansed, of not being holy and righteous and, um, and, and be in the kingdom of God. No unclean thing. It says otherwise, and I wrote, I wrote notes in the back of my Book of Mormon. It says if you're filthy and you go to the kingdom, then the kingdom of God becomes filthy. Mm. And we're, nobody's going to be in the kingdom of God having to deal with any amount of sin, not not only on their own person, but you're not going to be interacting with people that are still partially sinful or or, or or are only partially changed, you know, that they still have the will to step out of the perfect will of God and do their own thing. Nobody in the kingdom of God is going to be that person. So you're, you're either completely clean and righteous and or you're filthy. Uh, no unclean thing can enter the kingdom of God. How how can you go anywhere beyond that scripture and come up with a different eternity? That's that's blasphemy. That is uh, degrading the work of our Creator to take on flesh and blood and die for us. That is twisting the word of God. It's it's resting the word of God and in changing the story of eternity outside of the fact that no unclean thing can enter the kingdom of God. Is just it's just sinful, and it's it's not that it's intentional, but it's it's the result of fallen men changing the word of God and changing their understanding of the word of God. Yeah, I think that's it. So much is <clears throat> the it's changing the word of God, and and for some people, you know, it was just um, kind of slimy motives of people to satisfy their own desires in this world. You know this. This idea that somehow there are infinite levels of salvation was promoted by a few people who misinterpreted some scripture we have, and then that has never really been uh, corrected through generations. And and so I I just come back to this thought that you know what we were given in the Book of Mormon, or by the Book of Mormon was the doctrine we were supposed to live by and the doctrine we were supposed to preach and the thing that was supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. And here I think some of the most important words that have come to us in plainness, we have either overlooked or we've bypassed or we've put our own spin on it. And it's like, you know, to, to, to say, you know, I'm not even going to so far as say, hey, we're the, you know, to, to say we're the restored church. Now, I, I believe that. But just to say we have these plain words of God that teach he had to take on flesh and blood to, to remove our sin. You know, we, we don't teach that. We confuse this and, and, and these ideas that somehow, oh, well, we don't know if we're going to be with God or not. And there's these infinite different levels. And, you know, it's all based on these different things you do. It's like 
This, the Book of Mormon doesn't teach that at all. It's like, no, we had a Savior who, because we couldn't do anything about it, came down and, and did what we couldn't do. And our simple obligation is to respond to him. And then he removes the sin so that no unclean thing can be with him. You know? <laughs> and it's like, <clears throat> that's the beautiful message. Yeah, you can't remove your own sin. No. I mean, you, you just, here it is, First Nephi 4, um, the fourth chapter of First Nephi says, when you're brought to stand before God to be judged of your works, if your works have been filthiness, then you are filthy. And if they be filthy, it must needs be that they cannot dwell in the kingdom of God. If so, the kingdom of God must be filthy also. So filthy you, filthy me, filthy kingdom. I mean, it's, it's, it's real simple. I mean, do you want to go to a kingdom of God that resembles the earth? I mean, you can't allow any small degree of filthiness into the kingdom of God, or it will become the, the kingdom of this earth that we are all a part of right yeah, now. Yeah. So, I mean, filthy you, filthy me, filthy kingdom. I mean, the kingdom is going to be made up of filthy people. And, and the point you're, you're making is so good because the criteria is that no uncleanliness can be there. And, and this is the, the dividing point of all doctrine is that either your sin is totally removed or your sin remains. And that's, and, and it's like to say that somehow there's a bunch of in-between places totally speaks against God's power to remove sin. You know, and it's like he's, he's been telling us all along, he said, the only way your sin gets removed is if your heart is broken and contrite, then I can apply this grace, right? right. And that that's the only dividing line. And in the end, if it isn't, and if you didn't come in at the gate, which is straight and narrow, this, um, you know, he, there's, he says, I can't, I can't remove your sin, right? And he says, I, I employ no servant there. Yeah. I am the keeper of the gate. <laughs> My buddy wrote a song about the keeper of the gate. Uh-huh. There's, no other, there's no other person at the gate. You're going to come through me, uh-huh. and I'm either going to hand you a robe and say, here's my righteousness, or you're stopped you're, the gate. <laughs> go ahead, you know, go, go to the judgment bar. You have no robe. And yep. you're going to be like, I am completely naked without the robe of, of purity and righteousness. Um, but yeah, the verse 58 says, uh, I say unto you, the kingdom of God is not filthy. There cannot be any unclean thing that enters into the kingdom of God. Yeah. And don't you, and he says, hey, there is a place prepared for people for the filthiness. It's called hell. But he said, and, and don't you love 61, though, where it finally concludes, it says, wherefore the final state of the souls of men is to dwell in the kingdom of God or to be cast out because of the justice. And that's the that's what I love about, um, I just feel like that clarifies, uh, because I, I, I'm trying to think of all of the arguments I've heard over the years. Well, the kingdom of God is made up of, of this bright sun place and then this not so bright moon place and then as many st- as the stars are different in their brightness, that's how many other places there is. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but this says no. I mean, the, the final state of the souls of men is to dwell in the kingdom of God, yeah. or to be cast out of the kingdom of God. And right. it, and it, and it precedes that by saying there's no filthiness in the kingdom of God. So why why would um, you not? <laughs> you're either clean or you're not. So yeah. there's no there's no reason to not be with the Father in heaven forever if you're clean. And, and because it's, like, it's not your cleanliness based on anything you've done. It's the cleanliness of Christ. Christ's cleanliness is perfect. Yeah, and to say that, well, he could remove some of your sin and not all. It's like it isn't that. It's never described that. This is freeing because uh, 
you know, our, our, our upcoming theme next month at the, the branch that I attend is having a perfect brightness of hope. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about hope and, uh, and we dialogued yesterday morning driving to church in the morning. Uh, my wife and I was just asking her about hope. And, and I said, you know, when you wake up in the morning, do you have any hope for the day? I mean, what, you know, what's that look like day to day? And I think each one of us, you know, I wake up in the morning, like, I hope, you know, nobody I know dies. And I hope that, um, you know, I don't get acted upon by, uh, by my job or circumstances that are going to put me in a foul mood. You know, I hope that I just make it through the day and, and everything's nice and smooth. You know, we, we, we all carry that kind of hope, I think, when we wake up in the morning. But, um, but uh, to have a perfect brightness of hope has to be in something that you know is true. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Super Bowl was just played, and I'm sure, you know, millions of fans were hoping that their team won the Super Bowl. But you, but that's an, un, that's an unknown hope. Like, you hope that the Chiefs win, or you hope that the whoever they played, you know, Tom Brady wins his, you know, 20th Super Bowl ring or whatever, but... But you don't know the outcome. A perfect hope, a perfect and bright hope. I love that word brightness, perfect brightness of hope, the scripture says. That's based on something that you should know is going to happen and is revealed to you in the word of God. And it's a solid foundation so that your hope isn't imperfect. Um, it's not a dull hope. It's it's a perfect brightness of hope because it's built on what you should know to be true or what you have faith is going to be true in the word of God, a very solid foundation that you can trust and that this is my hope. This is where I'm hanging my hat today. It's that my filthiness will be done away and I don't have to, um, I don't have to worry about all of the things I struggle with. I certainly want to be free of those things, but they still weigh you down. I mean, it's your desire and, and your, and I believe that that, carries over into your day-to-day life, doesn't it? I mean, it's not like you're going to remain in your sins. I mean, that hope changes you in this life, not just in some future. Right. And that hope, you know, is the thing that Jesus said would bring about the good works that he requires in us. And, you know, for, again, I I don't want to go into it, but there's there's a bad connotation of of works that's been incorrectly brought forth because of the works of the Mosaic law that were done away, which were discussed in the New Testament. But what was also discussed in the New Testament in the Book of Mormon was the fact that because of this hope you talk about, we would bring forth good works in Christ. That would motivate us to want us to, you know, um, abstain from sin. That would motivate us to want to sacrifice for others. That would motivate us to want to live each day as we can according to Christ's will, according to our understanding. And all these things would then be the, the works by which we're judged one day in that, no, here's the evidence that your heart was changed and that you you were alive in me. And these are the these are the things that, get born out in the judgment day that our hope in Christ changed us because of all these things, you know, and that, that's the, that's the life he asks us to live. And he, he doesn't, you know, imply that we're going to do that perfectly when he says, Hey, I would that you be perfect. Yeah. You can take that a couple ways. You can say, well, he wants us to not sin and make uh, errors and things like that, which is of course true. But at the same time, there's a there's a deeper meaning to it when he says, I, "I would that you would be perfect." I think he was pointing to this larger 
correction of the uh, the point where, like you mentioned the word, the incorruptible. I want you to experience the perfection of my world again, where you will be incorruptible and without sin and, and enjoy this perfection that I've created that no eye has seen or no ear has heard. And it's like, he's, you know, he, he's maybe giving us guidance for this life. I can, I can see it that way where it's like, Hey, you, you, you need to be perfect. But then the scriptures say, Hey, everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. So where does that put us? We're not perfect. But at the same time, when he says, I would that you would be perfect. I really think that's a deeper expression of his will. It's like, no, I want you to be free from all this. sin. I want you to, I want you to take these simple steps in your life so that you can enjoy all this goodness, this robe of righteousness. I want to wrap around you someday. Yeah, we had a great uh, we had a great sermon yesterday in church, uh, and the guy talked about um, uh, he was explaining uh, this woman in um, it was a story this this woman shared that you know she her son had died and if she could have you know two minutes of her time with him back in her life you know what would those minutes be would it be like when he graduated high school or got mm-hmm. married or uh, any of those things and and the answer was I would go back to that time when he was a little boy and he was so mad at me and he threw a fit and he stomped out of the room, you know, to go pout. And I went back and gathered him up and put him in my arms and my lap and loved him. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought about that in relation to our relationship with our heavenly father. And, um, and I, I, I see that as that's what God wants for us. Um, the great, um, there's a there's an author and a preacher. His name was Brennan Manning. He was influential in one of my favorite recording artist lives, Rich Mullins. And Rich Mullins was uh, he wrote some of the best Christian music. Anybody that's heard the song "Awesome God" um, that was that was him. Some of Amy Grant's biggest hits mm-hmm. were actually written by Rich Mullins. Um, he was driving with his friend in a jeep, driving down the highway one night. And he he was already a Christian recording artist, but he struggled with addictions. He struggled with pornography, with alcohol, and he was very transparent about these things. And there was there was and his dad uh, and him had a pretty pretty harsh relationship. His dad was very harsh with him growing up, and um and he he's talked about these things in his life. But they were driving one night, and um his friend put this tape cassette in of this sermon from Brendan Manning and he was talking about the love of God and they had to pull the car over and Rich got out of the car and just ran out into the field and fell down on his knees and just wept because Mm -hmm. he finally understood the love his creator had for him. And that was his conversion experience in his life. And Brennan Manning, um, you can hear this on YouTube. Maybe we'll play it. Um, He said, I'm convinced that in the end of this life, when you stand before the Lord and he will, he will ask you one question, and this was brought out in our sermon yesterday. He will say to you, did you understand my great love for you? Mm-hmm. Because that is the changing point for every human being on this earth is when we understand how greatly we are loved by our Creator. And that, fil- that fulfills every nook and cranny and every crevice in our heart when we understand that love, that it will change us and life is just different after that. There's no reason to prove yourself. There's no reason to be jealous of other people or try to make yourself feel that you're better, that you're going to the best place in heaven. You're just all equally loved by your creator. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Uh, I should, uh, 
And I looked that up online. We we can play that. I think it fit in good here. I don't know. You get anything else on your mind? Oh, it's all good. You know, um, maybe we'll save this for the next session, but there are people who really want to understand, you know, well, some of these things scripture brings up that bring up questions like about baptism. First of all, people say, well, what about the thief on the cross? You know, and I think the Book of Mormon has a beautiful answer about that. Um, take a little bit of scripture, but I think maybe we'll go. <laughs> we can do that next time. Next time. That sounds good. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let, uh, let me see if I can find this clip. Maybe we'll end with that. I think it'd be a nice way to, to end this one. So hang on. In a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, and in literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question, and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are gonna to have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christians pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image. He wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be.